When I went out into the sunshine, I simply got blacker. In the wintertime, I was shaking, but I was still black. And when I die, I'm still going to be black. But I did a little research on folks of the lighter hue. That's white folks. I learned that when you were born that you were pink. When you grew up, you became white. When you went out into the blazing sun, you turned red. And if you had the guts to go to Chicago in February, you would turn blue. And I'm told that when you're really sick, you look green. And I'm told when you die, you're going to be purple. I do have a question. Why did you used to call me colored? Re relationship. The title of my message is Radical relationships. Radical relationships. Jesus Christ was radical. He didn't go with the tide. He went against the tide. I, I read where Jesus had a radical relationship with a man called Lazarus. He cried for him when he learned he was dead, and then he raised him from the dead. Jesus had a radical relationship uh, with his mother on the cross when he was being crucified, he said to the one who loved him, John, John, your mother. In other words, he took care of his mother when he was being crucified on the cross. It was a radical relationship with his mom. He even had a radical relationship with sinners because while he was being crucified, there was a thief who recognized who Jesus was and said, remember me. To which he responded, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Those are radical relationships. I believe that that's what God has called all of us to do, to have radical relationships, especially and even with people who don't look like you. The question is, how do you do it and why should you do it? I'm going to lay a scriptural foundation. Then I'm going to unfold eight irrefutable biblical principles of relationship. The Bible calls it reconciliation, even the ministry of reconciliation. But I'm calling it relationship because that's exactly what it is all about. It's about uh, relationship. Father, as we give this time to you, I pray that you would superintend our time in the power of your spirit. Speak in and through your servant as I humbly submit myself to you and speak then to these people in such a way that my brothers and sisters will embrace your heart and your word for demonstrating relationships across racial lines so that when the world sees it, they'll know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where I will lay my foundation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Radical relationship. There are five significant components of a radical relationship. I want to unveil these five components and then we'll deal with the principles. Component number one is you need to have what I call a radical motive. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. And I read from the New American Standard. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live may not may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You need to have a radical motive. That radical motive is driven by being controlled by the love of Christ. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. It means his love controls what I think, what I do, where I go, what I say, and who I relate to and how I relate to them. If I'm controlled by the love of Christ and what kind of love it is. He says, he died for all so that he who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It was a sacrificial love. He laid down his life so that we might live through his death, burial, and resurrection. So you need to have first a radical motive, that is, you need to be controlled by the love of Christ. Second component of this radical relationship, you need to have a radical mindset, how you think. Verse 16 says, Therefore, from now on, we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. Uh, the NIV says we no longer look at things from a worldly point of view. A radical mindset, and that is how I look at people when I see a person who looks different than me. Do I say that person is white, black, brown, red, or yellow, or is that a child of the king? Uh, when I see a person who is uh, needy, a young black man walking down the street with his pants too low, <laughs> uh, is that a hoodlum or is it a young man who needs to hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ? How I look at things uh, will determine how I perceive before I really understand. So I need a radical motive controlled by the love of Christ. I need to have a radical mindset on how I look at things. That reminds me of a young African-American by the name of Milton Olive. Uh, Milton Olive lived in Chicago, and he went into the military. He was in the Army, and he joined a, a dog tracker platoon. That's a platoon that looks for the enemy. They are first to find the enemy, and often the enemy is first to find them. Uh, Milton Olive was the only African-American in this dog tracker platoon. But he had four very close white friends. So Milton Olive and his white friends 
in that dog tracker patrol in Vietnam. They went out and looked for the Viet Cong. After looking all morning, they didn't find them, so they stopped to have sea rations lunchtime, and they were in a circle, Milton and his friends. And while they were eating their sea rations, the enemy saw them, found them, creeped up and rolled a hand grenade right into the center of Milton Olive and his four white friends. Milton Olive was the only one who saw the hand grenade. You learn in basic training, when you see a hand grenade, this time of war, you yell grenade, dive to the ground right opposite of where the grenade is. Milton realized in a split second, had he done that, one or more of his friends would have been killed because of the position of that grenade. So Milton Olive yelled, grenade, dove right at the grenade, pulled it into his stomach, and he curled up tightly. The grenade exploded, killing Milton Olive instantly. Not one of his white friends was even injured. Milton Olive, young 19-year-old black man from Chicago, Illinois, received the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery above and beyond the call of duty. But he received it posthumously because it cost him his life. I shared that story on Moody Radio a number of years uh, afterwards. And afterwards, I got a call from a sergeant in Harrison. He was in Connecticut at the time. He said, Reverend, I just heard you on Moody Radio, and you were talking about Milton Olive. Hey, I'm one of the white guys who's living because of Milton Olive. He said, Reverend, I want to tell you something. It sounds like you didn't know whether Milton knew Jesus. Listen, Milton Olive knew the Lord. He used to carry a little small New Testament with him all the time. He loved the Lord. Reverend, I just want to let you know something. I can't wait till I get to heaven. When I do, he said, I'm going to go straight to the throne of Jesus, and I'm going to thank him for what he did for me at Calvary. Then I'm going to look for Milton, and I'm going to thank Milton for what he did for me in Vietnam. When I heard that, I thought of these words, greater love has no one than this. And the man laid down his life for those whom he loves. Milton Olive had a radical Motive and a radical mindset. Third component you need to be a radical, uh, to embrace and live out a radical relationship is you need to have experienced a radical moment. Back to the description verse uh, 17. It reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A radical moment when you realize you're a sinner. A radical moment when you confess that you're a sinner. A radical moment when you realize that Jesus Christ died and was raised and he was raised on the third day. A radical moment when you recognize who you are and who Jesus is and you confess that you're a sinner and you ask Jesus to come into your life to be your Savior and your Lord. If you do that sincerely in a moment and a twinkling of an eye, you now have moved from being a, a sinner to a sinner saved by grace, a saint now declared by Jesus Christ. That's a radical moment. To be a radical follower of Christ and to have, understand radical relationships, you need to have 
embraced a radical motive, a radical mindset, experienced a radical moment, then you need to do something. You need to receive what I call a radical ministry. That's in verse 18 and 19. It says, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Notice that. Verse 17 says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things have been made new. That's verse 17. But then verse 18 says, <laughs> this new creature in Christ has been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what is that? I call it a radical ministry. What, what is radical Radical means it's not ordinary. Uh, radical means it's different than the crowd. Radical means you have passion for doing what is right in the sight of Christ, even if the world thinks you are nut. <laughs> radical means you go not with the tide, but against the tide. Radical relation, a radical minister of reconciliation is driven by the two greatest commandments. What are they? Love God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And they said the second one is lacking into it, which means the second one is as equal to the first one. Love your as, love your neighbor as yourself. The question is, who in the world is your neighbor? especially if that neighbor doesn't walk like you and talk like you and act like you. I believe your neighbor is anyone that you come in contact who has a need and you have the ability to satisfy that need. Uh, your neighbor's in the church with you. Uh, your neighbor's in the school with you. Your neighbor's on the job with you. Your neighbors live near you and by you. And so... What steps are you taking to move outside of your comfort zone to demonstrate love for your neighbor as yourself? That's the radical ministry of reconciliation. If, in fact, you embrace a radical motive, being controlled by the love of Christ. If you embrace a radical mindset and you look at things and people through the eyes of Jesus, if you have accepted and lived out a radical moment where you're a new creature in Christ, if you have accepted what is mandatory for all believers, and that is to embrace and live out the ministry of reconciliation, if you do that, then you can wear the title of being a radical messenger for Christ. That's in the next verse. It says, therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal 
through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. An ambassador for Christ. A radical messenger of Christ. Living out a radical life. Establishing Radical relationships by loving somebody who is not the same as you are racially, culturally, or ethnically, but loving that person as yourself. That's a radical dynamic. So the question is, how can you do that? Can you just kind of wave a magic wand and make it happen? That's where we're going to now go into eight biblical principles. But I have to tell you this story. I was preaching a message of reconciliation in Nebraska. There are only three black people in, America, in Nebraska because <laughs> it's cold. My, my son-in-law there, Gary, he's from Nebraska. So there's only two people black left in Nebraska. <laughs> I was preaching a message of reconciliation. And when it was over, we were in the fellowship hall talking. And I was talking to a young white couple, wonderful white couple. And they had a three-year-old daughter. And she was standing right behind her mom's leg. And she had this magic wand in her hand, a little stick. It was a magic wand. And she was just hiding behind her mom's leg. And we were talking about, man, how wonderful the scriptures are dealing with the ministry of reconciliation. And as we were having this conversation... A little three-year-old moved from behind her mother's head, and she put a magic wand. She waved at me and says, now you are white. <laughs> and I said, darling, it didn't work, did it? <laughs> but I love you for having that desire to make me just like you. But there's a problem. It didn't work. <laughs> because she couldn't make me just like her. And if you meet somebody who's different than you, don't try to make them be like you. What, what should you do? Seek to learn who they are. Seek to understand where they have been, walk a mile in their moccasin. You know, the issue, and I'm unveiling now, eight irrefutable biblical principles of reconciliation. They are analogous to a marriage for the very same things that it is required for a marriage to succeed and have any joy or peace is the very same principle that's necessary to establish and maintain a genuine relationship across racial lines. The very same thing. It's intentional. Uh, uh, you should have, you're, you're passing out papers now. and these, these papers will give you the irrefutable biblical principles of reconciliation. So God has called 
you and I and all of us as believers to be radical followers of Christ. Uh, to have a radical mindset, a, ra- a radical motive, to experience a radical moment, to embrace a mandatory radical ministry and be radical messengers. And how do you do that? These principles, I think, will make it very, very clear. And I'm going to lay them out for us, but we're going to have a chance uh, to have a Q&A. And let me tell you what, what the rules are for the Q&A. Uh, I hope we have some three by five cards that we'll pass out, a piece of paper. And I want you to write, even beginning now, anything that comes to your mind that you think is a problem that you have or will or anyone will face in trying to live out a genuine relationship with somebody who is not like you. Write it out on that card. I don't want you to sign it. I just want you to write it. If it comes to mind, at doing up talking and then for the Q&A and, and print it. Don't, don't do it in cursive. They tell me they don't even teach cursive in school anymore because everybody used a computer. Uh, but, but print it out as best you can and don't sign it. And we are going to show you that these principles can resolve any issue that comes up uh, regarding um, developing a relationship, a meaningful relationship, a radical relationship across racial lines. Principle number one, and it's on your paper, is call. We are all called to be involved in relationships, even across racial lines. That's a, uh, there's a key word for that. It's mandatory. And the passage dealt with it is what I've just spoken. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to verse 21. That's the passage that says the ministry of reconciliation is mandatory. And it's driven by the two great commandments. So the key word is that it's mandatory. Principle number two is called commitment to relationship. Relationship is founded on, on the, is built rather on the foundation of committed relationship. The key word for that is conflict resolution. Because in every relationship, conflict will come. Let's take my analogous relationship of a marriage. We don't ever have conflict in marriage, do we? Conflict will come over and over and over and over. Well, how can you have a successful marriage if you're going to always have differences and issues and conflict in the marriage? You have to resolve the conflict. The scripture that drives that principle is Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Ruth is a Moabite, a Gentile. Uh, She marries Naomi's son. And Ruth's sister, Oprah, marries Naomi's other son. And Naomi and her husband 
and Ruth and Oprah and their two sons uh, leave Bethlehem because of, uh, of the famine. All three of the men die. Naomi's husband died, Oprah's husband, and Ruth's husband died. So Naomi says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've got my cousin there, uh, Boaz. So Ruth, you and Oprah go back to Moab and to your Moab princess. What does Ruth say? Oprah kisses her and goes back. What does Ruth say? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. That's verse 16, but in verse 17 it says, And where you die, there I will be buried. She's saying, My relationship, Naomi, with you is going to be until death do us part. I use that with every marriage because that's the intent for marriage. So if the relationship is to be permanent, how do you have joy in the relationship? You have to resolve the conflict. To resolve a conflict. So you have to be committed. A committed relationship or commitment to relationship is resolving conflict. Uh, how does a husband express a criticism to a wife delicately? Good, good. But most times, if that criticism is whatever it is, it's hard to say. Maybe. It's time uh, she's speaking to you in a way that makes, that belittles you. She calls you sometimes in public what Esther called Fred Sanford. You old fish-eyed fool. She calls you names like that. So you, you, you want to tell her uh, what you are saying is wrong and it dishonors our Lord. When my wife does that to me, you know how I start a conversation? I say, Paulette, are you ready to receive? She says, no. But then she goes and spends some time in prayer. Then she comes back. And when she comes back, he says, okay, I'm ready to receive. You know, that means so much to me. Whatever that issue was is not nearly as important as now. She's ready to hear my criticism and receive it fully and completely. But then when she comes up to me and says, Raleigh, are you ready to receive? We use that in order to deal with issues and not put issues under the rug because you, if you have any issue in marriage that you cannot talk about, you have a problem. You have to be able to talk and dialogue about anything. The best way to, to resolve conflict is to understand rule how, R-U-E-L-L, how, H-O-W-E, how, and his definition of dialogue. Here's his definition for dialogue. 
He says, any one of us can become adversarial, even to those whom we love. But dialogue can resolve the adversarial relationship. It says, dialogue is to love what blood is for the body. When the flow of blood stops, the body dies. When love stops, when, I'm sorry, when dialogue stops, love dies and resentment is born. But dialogue can initiate, sustain, and restore relationship. The only commitment is everyone must be committed to dialogue and they must pursue dialogue relentlessly. So dialogue is the medicine. Well, if that is the medicine in marriage, it is the same medicine necessary in relationship. Because when you have a relationship with people, especially if they're different than you, uh, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be a lot of things that you don't understand. How come white folks shampoo their hair every day? Every day. So I ask my friend, my brother, help me understand. How come you shampoo your hair every day? I said, because my scalp is oily and the shampoo takes all out. I learned something. But I don't shampoo my hair. I don't do it even once a month. So ask me, hey, brother, how come you don't shampoo your hair? Because my scalp is dry. And I need all that oil that you're you getting rid of. I need that oil on my hair. How, you, you get to understand one another. Dialogue is critical. Principle number one is called. The key word is mandatory. Principle number two is conflict. Commitment to relationship. Key word is conflict resolution. Principle number three is intentionality. Intentionality is the purposeful, positive, and planned activity that facilitates relationship. It must be purposeful, it must be positive, and it must be planned. Think about before the husband and wife marry. They date. Can you date if you don't ask for it? After they date and they fall in love, they get engaged. If you get engaged, then you're going to set a date for the wedding. And then you have the wedding. After the wedding, you set a date and a time for a honeymoon. All of that is purposeful, positive, and planned. The same thing is necessary in a relationship. You will never have a relationship with a person who is racially different than you if it is not intentional. It's just not going to happen automatically. When folks come to the church and they are of the darker hue, uh, and uh, they are, you know what's going to cause them to stay? You have some wonderful worship, but that's not the key. You have the number two pastor now. <laughs> number two to Jesus. I just got pushed to number three for $23. So I'll take, I'll take number three. But that's not what's going to keep them here. Can I tell you what will keep them here? Relationship. 
When someone reaches out and embraces them and gets to know them and talk to them and care about them and invite them to have dinner with them, that's what's going to keep them involved, the relationship. So that's so key. The intentionality is purposeful, positive, and planned. The key is Ephesians 2, 14, 15. He is our peace who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility between the two groups, Jew and Gentile, creating one new man, thus establishing peace. In other words, when our Lord went to Calvary, God Almighty, God the Father, knew that that was going to be necessary before the foundation of the world. So his going to the cross and his resurrection was purposeful, positive, and it was planned before the foundation of the world. It facilitated the greatest relationship of all that Pastor talked about before we got started. This relationship between you and God Almighty through Jesus Christ the Son. Intentionality. Uh, the key words for intentionality is intentional, obviously. You can't establish a relationship if it's not intentional. Next principle is sincerity. Sincerity. Sincerity is the willingness to be vulnerable, self-disclosing what you feel, what you think, what you perceive, and what your difference is. The goal is bring resolve and establish a foundation of trust. Here's the key. When we don't know each other, there is no trust. When we don't know each other, there is suspicion. And when we don't know each other, we tend to talk to somebody just like us in order to try to understand somebody who's not like us. In the book I co-authored called Breaking Down Walls, we, we used to call that the WWB principle. You know what the WWB principle is? White folks know how to talk to white folks about black folks. And the conclusions are often negative and stereotypical. But there's a BBW principle too. Because black folks sure know how to talk to black folks about white folks. We're convinced we write about it too. Hispanics know how to talk to Hispanics about everybody. The issue is, if you want to know something about somebody who's not like you because there's just something that seems different and strange and you don't understand it, then ask that person. Talk to that person to get an understanding. So sincerity is the willingness to be vulnerable, self-disclosing, what I think or what I perceive. Uh, you're talking to your black friend? Ask him, say. Uh, do all y'all daddies steal hubcaps? <laughs> I'm telling you, that that's reality. People think that. No, my daddy doesn't do it, but my brother's daddy does. 
you have to say what you're thinking. The dumbest thing you, uh, the dumbest question is the one that's not asked. Because when you have that white friend says, your daddy rich like all white people. You have to ask questions. Asking questions Here's a, here's a question that don't ask. When you get to know this black person, uh, tell me, what does your father do? Don't ask those kind of personal questions. I may not have known my father or seen my father, but tell me what your father did. Lay out issues in your life first. Then there will be reciprocation and all of a sudden you will begin to then know one another. Be vulnerable. Let me ask you this in terms of vulnerability. It's what you think, what you perceive, what your difference is, what your perception is. Now which one of those have to be Right. None of them. And most times, what you think is wrong, what you perceive is wrong, what you, what you understand or, or believe is wrong until you talk with one another and find out the truth. Next principle is sensitivity. Sensitivity. Sensitivity is gaining knowledge to relate empathetically with someone who is different than yourself. Gaining knowledge to relate empathetically with someone who is different. Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love. Gaining knowledge. How do you gain knowledge about somebody that without offending them? Here's a simple phrase to use. Uh, help me understand. Let me tell you how simple it is. Do this. Look at the person next to you and just say, in a, in a, in a wonderful, nice tone, say, just say, help me understand. If you ask that question in that tone, then the person will respond to you to help you understand whatever you were thinking that you didn't understand. And that way you will gain knowledge and you will be able to relate in a way that's very meaningful. Gaining knowledge. How does a husband understand a wife? You ask questions. You talk. How does a wife understand a husband? It's the same principle. The more you get to understand that person, the more that relationship will be meaningful but you have to gain knowledge, and you gain knowledge by asking the question. Principle number six is sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up a higher position to intentionally take a lesser position to facilitate relationship. Now, how does that relate when you're developing? How do you give up a higher position 
to take a, little, a less position. Give up your right to be right. Give up your right to be right. In marriage, whenever there's an argument between a husband and a wife, both of them are convinced that they're right. And in a relationship across racial lines, uh, things will come up, issues will come up, and you'll have to give up your right to be right. What's an issue that will cause an issue? A lot of times, politics. Most people will say, don't go there. I say, go there, but go there and say, help me understand. Help me understand why would you vote for this guy? Help me understand why wouldn't you vote for that guy? If you have a growing relationship and you ask that question and you understand those, di those dynamics, it strengthens the foundation of the relationship. If you, if, you, if you are convinced that you're right in the relationship and for the benefit of that relationship, you give up your right to be right, in time, truth will be revealed. And whoever was right, that will be revealed. And whoever was wrong, it will be revealed because time and truth walk hand in hand. The key words for Counting uh, for sacrifices count the cost. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Consider others as, how many? Consider others as more important than yourself. If you're going to have a meaning relationship with someone who is racially different than you, in your heart, can you consider that person and their feelings and what they've experienced as more important than yourself? It's easy to do between husband and wife because you're falling in love. But the scripture says you're supposed to love your as and if you genuinely love your neighbor as yourself, it should become easier to consider that neighbor as more important than yourself. And if both people, if it's black and white, if both people consider the other person as more important than yourself, you've, you've got now an even platform that you both can stand on because you're both considering the other as more important than yourself. Principle seven is empowerment. Empowerment is the use of repentance and forgiveness to create the right and maintain the right atmosphere in a relationship. How often does a husband have to repent? Daily. How often does the wife have to repent? Probably once a week. Get a favor from the ladies. The use of repentance and forgiveness. You're going to blow it in your relationship, husband and wife, and how often do you do it? Well, in a cross-racial relationship, you're going to blow it. And you have a choice when you blow it in that relationship. Go your separate ways. 
or resolve the difference. Resolve the conflict. Take responsibility. Repent and forgive. Guess what? When you repent, guess what it has to be from? The heart. Guess what's more difficult? To forgive. But forgiveness must also be from the heart. So in any relationship, there's going to be differences. There's going to be struggles. But to maintain that relationship, you must be willing to repent, take responsibility, and you must give in order for that relationship to continue. And when you blow it in a relationship across relations, across racial lines, and the person is vulnerable and said, hey, I was offended by that. Well, why? And you explain it. And then there's repentance and there's forgiveness. Guess what happens to that relationship? It gets stronger. It gets stronger. And you grow in the process. Principle number eight is interdependence. Well, let me give you the scripture because it's key for empowerment. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, For this is the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That drives repentance and forgiveness. Principle 8 is interdependence. Interdependence recognizes differences but realizes that each person offers something that the other person needs and does not have. In other words, I bring something to the relationship with my white friend that he doesn't have and that he needs. Maybe it's to learn how to clap on two and four. <laughs> maybe it's to learn maybe it's learn how to dance and and sing at the same time. But my white friend brings something to that relationship that I do not have and that I need. And I must see that and understand it and respond. And if I have something that my white friend uh, needs and does not have, and my white friend has something that I need that he has, and we share it, then there is equality in the relationship. You know what it brings up? I need you, and you need me. Let me wrap this up with an illustration. And during our interaction, uh, I, I want to see if there are any questions 
and with that you might have because I believe that any question we have relates uh, to that dynamic. Uh, my wife, Paulette's father, uh, I, want, I want you to say something. Uh, say no guilt, just understanding. I want you to hear it again. Say no guilt, just understanding. As I share this, I want you to hear me good. Hear it all out. It has nothing to do with guilt. But it has everything to do with understanding deeply as we talk racial dynamics. My wife's grandfather was white. Because the white owner of a plantation that my wife's grandmother worked on, the owner of that plantation required her grandmother to lay with him. She was 13. She conceived and gave birth to my wife, to my wife's father. When my wife grew up, She had a little hole in her heart because she wanted to know who her grandfather was. And she'd ask her father. He'd never tell her. She'd ask him. He, he would just not tell her. So finally, after years of asking him, he said, his name is Ewing. His name is Ewing. So she said, Ewing. So my wife went to look it up and found out that they started keeping records one year after that took place. And so she couldn't find it. So my wife grew up knowing this. She married me, and our minister was reconciliation. And of my wife's closest friends, as we passed it in Chicago, her, her closest friends were white. She just didn't have those issues. But she just had this hole. I was talking to a men's conference, and I shared in that men's conference what happened to my wife. So his name was Ewan. So she never found that way, but that's okay. We're about reconciliation, and we're not holding that. And, and even my best friend was Glenn K. Ryan. He's white, and her best friends were white. So when I, I finished that issue, and I was even talking about forgiveness. The session was over, and I was speaking three times, and a white brother in the back, back of the thing said, Brother Raleigh, he was coming. Uh, he was head blonde, long hair, and he was coming. And he, he was moving his mouth. Words were not coming out. And he just did this at his name tag. Did this at his name tag. His name tag said Ewing. When he came up and he says, I feel so bad about what happened to your wife. He says, I'm white and my name is Ewing. Can I ask you, on behalf of the Ewing that did to you, will you please, please forgive us? And I said, brother, in the name of Jesus, I do. And I hugged him, and we wept. I got to my room, and I called my wife, Paulette. 
when I told her what happened, before I could call his name, the minute I said his name was Ewing, she started sobbing, just sobbing, sobbing. When, when she sat down, I said, honey, what's the matter? She said, the minute you said that, I knew what you were going to say. And it was as though when you said it, a burden was lifted off my shoulder and a hole was beginning to fill in my heart. Just a moment when you said it. You said, man, it meant so much to me. Well, when that conference was over, this brother Ewing said, listen, I, I live in Wisconsin and I'd like to come where you're preaching at your church. I said, tell me when you're going to come. And on the Sunday he came to the church, I delivered a message and I used that very example. And at the end of that example, I said, Paul had has never met Ray Ewing that did that until today. Ray Ewing is here. He was in the back of the church and he stood up. Paul was on the front row and he was on the back row and I said, Ray, meet Paulette. Paulette, meet Ray Ewing. And she turned out and she ran down the aisle. And they embraced. And they hugged and they wept. The Spirit of the Lord said to Paulette, the arms that are holding you represent the grandfather that you never knew. It healed. What am I saying? I'm not suggesting that anybody is required to do anything of that nature unless the Holy Spirit speaks to you as he spoke to Ray Ewing and said, Ray, I want you to respond. And he did. He became a surrogate. And because of what took place, with my wife's father's mother in her heart. It was erased because of a young man who was not related, did not know, but the Spirit said, I want you to take responsibility. That surrogate impact made great difference. So I, I close with, with this. God is calling us to be radical Radical, radical in our relationships across racial lines. And I want to ask this question. And I'm asking you to be completely honest. I'm speaking now to my white brothers and sisters who are here. Is there one of you, any one of you here, who right now are carrying a torch in your heart because something wrong was done to you or a close family member that you have by an African-American and that issue to this day has not yet really been resolved in a way that gave you peace. If there's any one of you here that that's happened to, 
Could you do me a favor and just, just stand? If there's a white person here, well, this is, and there was an issue, what could, it could have been abuse. It could have been sexual abuse. It could have been physical abuse. It could have been somebody that stole something precious from you. And that person was, say, an African-American, and it was something that just has not yet been resolved. If that's true and it happened, could you just stand where you are and acknowledge that? If, is there anyone here? If not, that's great, but if it is, I would like to know to pray. God bless you, my sister. God bless you, sister. Is there anyone else? Jermaine, will you go and stand by that sister in the back, please? To both of you, my sisters, as an African-American man, in this moment, this hour, I choose, in the name of our Lord, to take full responsibility for the wrong, the sin that has been perpetrated against you by an African-American. Because I am African-American, because the spirit of the living God wants me to do that, I'm standing instead for that person. And on behalf of that person who sinned against you, I ask you in the name of Jesus, please, Please, right now, forgive us. Please release it. Please let it go. Whoever did it and whatever it was, it was done out of wrong and ignorance. In the name of Jesus, I ask you, please, please forgive us. Fathers, I stand as a surrogate for the person who wronged my two sisters who are standing. I ask you, Lord, to touch them right now and give them total freedom to release the pain, the perpetrator, to let it go totally and completely as I ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And I pray this in the name of our Father. Amen and amen.
Pastor Jeff, led by the Spirit, has asked this question for for the African-American brothers and sisters who are here. If there's any one of you who are carrying a torch because of a wrong or sin in any measure that has been done to you by a person who was white and it has not been reconciled in any way to your satisfaction, will you stand now? Any African-American brother or sister who's had an experience or wrong that was done to you by a person who was white, that matter has not been satisfied in any way. Will you please stand now? Is there one? made the call, Pastor. The 54-year-old man who grew up uh, in South Florida in a community When anybody that was of the darky hue that lived in my neighborhood, then there wasn't anybody, any white people living in Collier City. But I grew up at a time where schools were being integrated. It was a new thing. I went to fifth grade at Charles Drew Elementary. I rode a bus into Collier City. And uh, there were a lot of friends of mine who lived in Collier City who came to Coconut Creek Elementary for first through fourth and through went to junior high and high school, my high school. And uh, old enough to have seen a lot of things. Not quite as old as you, Dr. Washington. But I'm old enough to have seen some things. time I, Charles Drew Elementary got beat up in a bathroom by probably somebody who was 17 or 18 just for some lunch money. An older brother of somebody I knew. I saw white kids show up to high school. They didn't used to shoot up schools, but I saw a white kid show up at high school with a shotgun waiting at the steps of the, of the bus bringing the kids in from Collier City to settle the matter. 
I saw Victor Blue and his brother. I've been in school with Victor every year. Victor's probably nine years old. My dad was the chief of the fire department. My next door neighbor and best friend, his dad's chief of the police department in my city. No white people live in my city. I mean, no black people live in my city. Victor Blue and his brother would come into my city to fish the canals, the cane poles, to catch brim to bring home to eat. We used to fish those canals too. Victor Blue might have said, Jeff, help me understand why white people catch fish and throw them back. Because he didn't catch fish to throw them back. He'd catch fish to bring them home and, and eat. And Victor Blue and his brother were fishing on the bridge that led to my house. And my best friend, whose dad was the chief of police, and I, my dad's chief of the fire department, are walking home. And there's Victor and his brother fishing with a mess of brim. And uh, the police officer drives up who doesn't matter his name. I still know his name real well. And says, Jeff, Joey, what are you two boys talking to these? You can just imagine. And he got out of his car and he took all the fish they'd caught and kicked it into the water and then beat them across their back with, the cane, with their own cane poles and told them that they couldn't fish in the city. I had to go home and ask my mom and dad how that was okay. They didn't really have any answers. Worse than that, I had to go to school the next day and sit next to Victor. Thank God my kids have grown up in a world where I don't think they've ever seen anything like that. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you, Dr. Washington, because it's easier to look at you than it is to look out here right now. We still aren't there yet. We still aren't all the way there yet. And I know we're going to have Q&A, but I just want to say on behalf of a whole lot of people, that I'm sorry, and I repent in the name of Jesus for things you've seen and things you experienced here in this city. And I want to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brother. When he dies, he's going to die a black man. When I die, I'll be purple. Dr. Washington, I don't have the authority to speak on behalf of all white people. Certainly, I don't want to speak on behalf of ignorant white people. But with whatever authority I do have, I ask in Jesus' name for forgiveness. For things I've seen done and for things I've done. For wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors, wrong mindset for a lack of motivation to move from the place we are to the place we need to be. 
ask for your forgiveness. I ask the blood of Jesus would wash us all. Not to make those differences go away, but to give us fresh eyes to see and fresh hearts to love. profess to be able to speak for all black folks but I certainly forgive you and believe that every black man or woman uh, whose heart anywhere right would join me in saying we forgive you and we receive that totally and completely 